Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Hey guys, here's a little preview of today's episode. I had an awesome conversation with Matt Winger. He is an amazing guy, and we talk about some really deep questions related to the gospel and trauma. If you've ever wondered, how does the gospel interact with trauma? Um, how does trauma and sin fit together? And what in the world can I do about it? to heal and to outgrow porn. This episode is for you. It's really awesome. Today on the show, I'm really excited to introduce everyone to Matt Winger, who is the clinical director of Boulder Recovery. Welcome to Husband Material, Matt. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited because the more I learn about you and what you are all doing at Boulder Recovery, it seems like we have so much in common. Like, Guys, if you really enjoy the kind of Christ-centered clinical approach that I believe in at Husband Material, both in our podcasts and in our coaching and in our courses, then you will love Boulder Recovery. So first at the beginning, I just want to tell a little bit about what it is. What is Boulder Recovery? Yeah. So it's a 14-day trauma-intensive for men struggling with porn and sex addiction and intimacy disorders. So we get uh, eight to 10 guys in um, all at the same time. They go through the program all together. And in that two-week period, we're, we're teaching them about trauma and the effects that it has on the brain and on the body. Um, we're teaching them about, you know, uh, recovery tools and addiction cycles, things like that. A lot of um, informational stuff, but the bedrock of the program is experiential therapies based around, you know, solid clinical work, but also a deep integration of the gospel. And um, for Christian men, I I found that, that integrating just the, the mental or the intellectual, the emotional, uh, the spiritual and the physical is, what we have to do if we want to engage in real recovery, like all aspects of the way that God created us. And a lot of programs do like educational stuff, right? The intellectual stuff. A lot of programs do emotional trauma work. A lot of programs do gospel-centered treatment or, or, or biblically-based recovery treatment, something like that. But there's not a lot of places, if any, that try to integrate all of those and and um, and do it in a time frame that is, um, I don't know, convenience the right word, but... Um, it is convenient for guys in, in, in the world that we live in right now. So that's kind of a, a little bit about it. Yeah. So guys, if you've ever thought about doing some kind of residential treatment, going away somewhere, but it feels impossible or unattainable to go away for 45 days or something, maybe this 14-day intensive could be a really good option. I've heard from multiple guys that it's amazing. And I will actually be visiting Boulder Recovery myself. And we will be talking about that at the end of the episode. So stick around if you want to hear about a time when we can meet up at Boulder Recovery. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great window of time. You you don't have to quit your job. You know, you can take your vacation. Um, We do eight to 10 hours of, of work a day. So it is an intensive. It's intensive. You know, that's the right word for it. So you get a lot of bang for your buck there. But but yeah, it's a good window of time and we get a lot done and um, a lot of deep trauma work that we can get into and and bring out and then also repair in that in that window of time. So, yeah, really proud of the program and excited to have you come visit me. It's going to be awesome. Now, let's talk a little bit more about what you mean by trauma work and specifically integrating that with Christianity? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and and one I don't think is asked very much. And I, I think that a good place to start with that is encountering where we're at culturally in the church. You know, historically speaking, I think there's been some sort of a uh, conflict between therapy and um, the church or, or or what we might call pastoral counseling and, and therapy or clinical therapy, right? And I think as 
um, culture shifts, as we learn more about the brain and the body that God's created, that we're seeing these two worlds come more and more together. Like churches are hosting uh, therapists in their building. Uh, churches, larger churches have counseling ministries, you know, things like that. So it's becoming more and more common that these things are, are coming together. But for us, what that means is we're going to use um, scientifically and clinically validated treatments for trauma in our program. We're not, but we're not going to ignore the role that Jesus has in our lives as a healer. Uh, and so we will use tools like guided meditation. We'll use tools like uh, a technique called brain spotting, which is similar to EMDR. If you, if you've heard about that, um, and integrate that with people's faith. So um, guided meditation, for example, is a way that we can revisit traumatic memories, wounded places in our past, and invite Jesus to participate in that process. Like, what is he doing there in that room, in that place, in that memory where you're, where you were abused or where you were hurt or where you were rejected or ignored by your, by whoever. And notice that Jesus is there in the corner. And what is he what is he doing? What's his face? What is his um, orientation towards you? Things like that where, man, I didn't realize that Jesus was really a part of that experience. That was a shameful experience for me. And I thought God was really far away, that he wasn't paying attention or he um, was ashamed of me in that moment, right? Rather than what the gospel tells us and what um, the, literally the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about how Jesus responds to people in repentance, that he, who how he responds to people um, in, in their sin and in their shame, and uh, you know, so so that's kind of a, a a short way of talking about it. What really gets me excited is peeling back the layers within um, uh, a guy's theology. Um, we have. Uh, an idea that Jesus looks at us a certain way, even in our sin and in our shame, right? That he forgives us or that he loves us or whatever that may mean for us. But practically speaking for guys in recovery from sex addiction, they don't actually interact with Jesus like that. Um, you know, there's what I call a conflict between their theological beliefs and their functional beliefs. And this is something I hear all the time from guys. They say, I know intellectually, I understand that he loves me, but I don't feel it. Yeah. Where, where would that come from, right? Because nowhere in the Bible do we see Jesus as someone who is not intimately and excitedly involved in an experience of who he is as a person, right? Um, in in some places, it, it seems that the cognitive part of who he is and what he wants to come and do is almost the, you know, side dish to experiencing his incarnation, you know, amongst his disciples and all of the events of that whole, you know, two, three year period. I love that. I want to pause there for a moment because we often kind of hyper fixate on Jesus being on the cross but you're saying that we need to experience his incarnation. Yes, I am. And that's so exciting to me to, to be asked that question because I mean, Jesus didn't just uh, wasn't just born as a baby. They didn't crucify him as a baby. He, he lived a life and it's a really gruesome, you know, image as I say it out loud. But, but, but my point is like, he didn't just come down and just immediately die for our sins. He lived a life. He lived an incarnate life with other people. Um, he walked roads with them. He got his feet dirty, got his hands dirty. He met people. He cried with people. He laughed with people. He gave his disciples and the people that followed him an intimate experiential picture of who God is on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and, and guys in recovery and a lot of Christians just day-to-day feel like that kind of language or that kind of relationship with Jesus is the cherry on top and not the essence of what it means to know, know Jesus and to know God. And um, when, when we're working with men in recovery, that's absolutely the case. 
they have accepted a moderated version of 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 a relationship with God based on their sin and shame. That I, you know, I'm sexually immoral and I'm doing all these things and all the bad lists in the New Testament. Therefore, you know, God forgives me, but he doesn't like me very much. God forgives me, but he does he's not interested in me really. Um, he puts up with me, but he isn't um rejoicing over me. You know, he's not pursuing me, he's not running me down. Maybe he's disappointed in me. Maybe he just kind of tolerates me. Yeah. And what I get all the time, man, is so so we'll be in the middle of a session with with somebody like this and 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 it's so common, right? And um they they will almost quote uh the line of the prodigal son, right? Hey, I I don't really deserve to be your son. I don't deserve to be your son. I don't, I just I I'm just a servant. I just want to be a servant in your house. That's all I want. I had a guy just a couple weeks ago. He was just bawling his eyes out in group therapy and just praying to God in that moment together with us. Uh, just God, I want to serve you. God, I just want to serve you. And I just whispered in his ear, like, I just want to be a servant in your house. And he was just like, because that's the, that's the, this, that's the moderated acceptance that, that, that I, that I'll take as someone recovering from, from sex addiction. I, I'm not a son. I don't deserve the robe and the ring. The party's for somebody else. That party's not for me. And, you know, I'm just going to go live in the, you know, the servant's quarters, right? And just, you can, I just need three hots in a cot and, and, and I'll be good. But God wants so much more for us than that, right? So getting to bring guys through that process of actually experiencing that parable um, for them is so, so powerful. So it's such a blessing, um, such an honor to be a part of each time, you know. I want to know from your perspective, how you take people from knowing about God's love, knowing about this Jesus who is kind and intimately involved and who delights in us to actually experiencing him. How do you get to experience that? Well, there's a, two pieces to that, right? And um, one is an intellectual exercise kind of and the other is well, you know certain tools that that I've adopted and we use in the program all the time and so I'll, I'll do the first part first the intellectual part what we are working with and the guys that come to our program and the guys that I that I that I love to work with is um, understanding that trauma has had a effect on your spiritual life and that seems like a really um, obvious thing to say. Well, yeah, of course it has. But how, you know, um, and when, when I talk to guys about this, um, there's this kind of prima facie understanding of like, yeah, of course it has. Um, but when I, but they're outside of their awareness are all of these kind of, um, uh, you know, needles, all, uh, you know, dug in to their spiritual life that they're just not aware of, right? They're just thorns that are just there that are just irritating them. And they just don't, they're, they're invisible almost and they can't pull them out and they hurt. Right. And it's, it's these little needles that like, God doesn't really care about you. Right. He wasn't there in that moment, in that moment. So I can't count on him. Right. Or that one time I prayed, or maybe I've been praying for 10 or 15 years to be delivered from this addiction. And he hasn't done that for me. So so God is um, inconsistent or he's uh, manipulative that he'll, he'll only answer my prayers if I do the right things. Right. And I, and I have all these systems and they're functionally superstitious, right? That if I, if I do all of these things, then God's going to respond to me in some karmic way that's going to help me out. And the reason that everything in my life is going terribly is because God's punishing me rather than, kind of the natural consequences of my choices. And so we have all these built-in messages from our trauma that either God is cold and distant, like a dismissive or invalidating, you know, parent, or he's um, angry and abusive and he's out to get me and out to punish me and out to like, you know, 
No, well, just it's like a, an abusive parent and a dismissive parent. And we just adopt those ways of, of looking at God unconsciously. So are you telling me that if I have a spiritual life where I, I feel like God is either abusive or dismissive, that that's revealing my trauma? It's not just revealing your trauma. It's a symptom probably of your trauma that the way I look at my caregivers is often the way that I interact with God. And because I've compartmentalized those two parts of my life so much, I can't even see that that, that that's who I've made God into. Um, I can't even see that I projected that onto him. And I just unconsciously believe that's just God's character. And that's just who he is. And, and I have all this evidence to justify why I feel that way. You know, I keep sinning and doesn't sin separate me from God. And, and, and I have all these, you know, shame, I have all this shame and, and, and I can't even look at him in the eyes if, if I could even imagine doing that. And so of course my relationship with God is dysfunctional. Of course, he wants to punish me because I'm doing bad things. And of course he has his back turned to me because I can never get it right. And I'm a disappointment and I'm a failure to him. But all these are tangled up in those trauma messages and those negative thoughts that are built into our traumatic experiences. And But we have evidence in the addiction to prove why God should treat us that way. So you see how like messy that is? Yeah. Where do those messages actually come from? Well, I think that some of the core messages of uh, what I believe about God come from what I call the hot box and cold box, a a growing up in a cold environment where um, my caregivers didn't seem to, to have their face turned towards me. They had their emotional back to me. And in that environment, you know, young people or kids develop a belief that, you know, Uh, there's something wrong with me. Otherwise they'd pay attention to me more. I must not uh, be worthy of love or at the kind of a core level, I don't matter. And not, at least not as much as the stuff that they're really paying attention to, like their money or their marriage or their mental health or their addiction or whatever it is. I don't matter. Right. And you can see real easily how that language can be plopped onto God, right? Like, well, he's not paying attention to me. I don't, I don't really matter. I'm not, I have to be perfect. And then if I am perfect, then he'll turn around and bless me. And, and I'll have this warm, wonderful relationship with him that I've been promised or that I see in the, in the scriptures, but, but I have to be perfect in order to get that, which is certainly in conflict with the gospel. Right. And if you ever like asked a guy and be like, Hey, isn't that in conflict with the gospel? They'd say, yeah, yeah, it is. And I don't really believe that, but, but functionally, they are believing that. And then on the hot box side, right in this chaotic, abusive environment, what's the core message there? Well, I'm a failure. I'm stupid. I'm a disappointment. There's something wrong with me. Or maybe at the core level, I'm bad. And that's why my parents are treating me this way. That's why I'm being abused. That's why I'm being verbally or physically or whatever abused is because I'm bad. And this is how you treat a bad kid. And that's so easy to pop on God, right? Because I can read, you know, 20 verses in the New Testament or in, especially in the Old Testament and say, well, yeah, I am bad. And, and that's the way that God should treat me is because, because I'm a sinner and, 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 and I can't stop sinning, right? I'm in this addiction. And so, yeah, I'm bad. And this is why God's out to get me. And he should be out to get me. And I don't want your grace. I don't want your, this easy grace that you guys are throwing around, right? Because you know, and functionally, they're in a space where like, I have to earn it. I have to earn God's grace rather than accept it. Right. And this whole idea that sin separates me from God is not based in the gospel, which they say they believe that because if Jesus died on the cross for me, then that sin has been paid for in Romans 8, 38 and 39 say, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that's what I'm talking about. These wounds, they teach us these negative thoughts about ourselves, these lessons about ourselves that run in conflict with the gospel, but it doesn't seem to matter. The trauma seems to speak louder 
than the gospel. And if I don't have someone to gently point that out to me, then I'm going to be stuck in it. Yeah. I feel like you've described the place where we find ourselves and some of those lies that we believe so accurately. How would you restory someone's life who, who has struggled with pornography for years and years in light of the gospel? Yeah, that's a great question. And it kind of brings me back to that second part, right? Of like, okay, there's the intellectual understanding that like my trauma has impacted my relationship with God. The second part is, well, how do I engage then in a relationship with Jesus, in a relational connection to Jesus um, in a way that restores my identity? Because that's what we're talking about when you say, well, re-narrative, right? Like I need to restore or, or re, um, re-engage with or find healing for this identity that's been so wounded in trauma and been so wounded in addiction that I don't even know who I am, right? I don't have an identity, all right? And like I said, and it starts with, well, what is the bedrock of your identity? Well, I first have to experience that the truth and hear the truth that my bedrock identity is someone who's loved by God, period. I think it's A.W. Tozer. He said that the, the, the one thing I know about myself for certain is that I am deeply loved by God. Um, and teaching guys, okay, like if that's the bedrock there, then how does that integrate with my story that like, well, I went through all these really, really horrible things. If we start back at, you know, age zero, because Matt, you can like help me like develop an identity now as somebody in recovery, but well, what is this um, passionate um, overflowing with love and delight and joy. Where is that God back when I was four, five, six, seven years old in my, in my trauma? Like what was going on? What was going on there? And how do I retell that story to myself? And, you know, well, that God had, has an identity for you and he's always had an identity for you. He knew who you were before you were created. And he, he knew who he created before it was, marred by addiction and trauma that you had this beautiful self that he created as that four or five, six year old kid before all that horrible stuff happened to you. And all of that got derailed, right? How do I go back and find those parts of my identity? How do I go back and re-experience that child, that young kid, who was really just ultimately himself. I didn't have, wasn't trying to perform, wasn't trying to pretend, wasn't trying to be anybody but himself and let that kid inform more about my identity now. What did he love? What did he, what mattered to him? That's part of it. Yeah. One of the questions I like to ask is what did he really enjoy? Like what sustained your attention when you were a kid, what movies lit up your imagination? What books could you read for hours? Yes. And I love finding those kind of emblematic images for guys. I remember I was working with this one guy and I asked him to find that kid. And what he rewound back to was just a shirtless kid in jean shorts running around the woods with a BB gun, you know, trying to nail frogs. And it was just this, picture of this this wild man right who who just wanted to be in nature who just wanted to have these adventures who just wanted to be on an adventure right and man god's heart and jesus heart for that boy is just so tender and so close and he created him that way to love and adventure and he's inviting him in to a new adventure he didn't stand idly by while that kid was wounded and hurt and ignored and abused. He was there. He was there. And he was weeping over that. And he's calling that boy back, back to the forefront, that identity back. Hey, 
This is who I created you to be. And the, the momentary uh, pains and trials of this life are just that and momentary and who you are in this adventure of, of, of discovering yourself and discovering God is going to go on for eternity. Right. And, and that's an adventure worth, worth going on, you know? Yeah. And that's where I see the, the beauty of the gospel being not just about the cross, but about the incarnation, about being with God, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Yes. And I, I draw this on the whiteboard when we get to this part of the program, but it's kind of like a infinity symbol, right? Of the of spiritual development where you uh, learn more about who God is. And in learning more about who God is, I learn more about who I am as a creator, creation of God and as someone created to know him. And as I learn more about myself, I learn more about who God is in my life and, and then back around again and again. Right. And I'm just kind of doing this infinity loop in my identity development and my understanding of who God is. That's such a great image of this healing process. It's not linear. It's not predictable. It's not something we can just control. It's like I'm learning more about who I am and what happened to me when I was a boy and then letting that become part of learning about Jesus and learning about how God sees me, how he loves me in those moments. And then that also gives me more of a sense of who I am. And it's so beautiful and intricate. Yeah. And and, and it has to be the bedrock of, of a Christian man's recovery. Like we have to be there, right? Because we have to first understand that we're worthy of recovery, that we're loved by God, and that we're, we're worthy of health and our, our wives and our partners are worthy of, of recovery and health. And all that has to be kind of um, uh, the the foundation, right, of my identity and the people around me identity as, as creations of God and, and everyone else, right, the, the, the women that I might want to objectify. And so that's why we teach that as an element of our program of like, hey, your hot and cold box experiences have informed your relationship with God, but you have to parse through that to experience all of who he is so that you can start from that place of, okay, I have an identity trauma and addiction hasn't robbed me of that. And I can see myself and other people as God's sons and daughters. And then I interact with them in that way. Matt, what would you say to somebody who who's kind of skeptical about this whole idea of trauma induced sexual addiction, which is the framework that you guys use at Boulder recovery? Um, if somebody's thinking, well, according to the Bible, my problem is that I'm a sinner and that I sin. Um, if I say that my problem is trauma, doesn't that make me uh, in a victim mindset? And doesn't that go against scripture? Yeah, that's a, a very accurate question because I get that a lot. And it's very nuanced, isn't it? Because I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about um, trauma. I'm talking about repentance and, I, and I'm talking about, you know, um, victimization, right. And, and, and my, the temptation to step into the role of, of being a victim and, and the goods and the bads of that, um, to untangle that, you know, is, is rather complicated, I would say and nuanced, but, but, to to say it quickly, you know, um, those don't have to um, be mutually exclusive. I can be in a pattern of sin and also in an addiction at the same time. Like those aren't mutually exclusive. That my addiction and and sinful choices are are somehow different. Guys like to do that, right? Because I don't want to. I, I'm much more comfortable encountering my behaviors as a moral problem, as a moral failure, something that I can deal with and fix and stop if I want to, then as an addiction that is out of control in my life that I really don't have the tools or capacity to, to deal with. And I hate it. And I hate it every time I do it. And I don't want to do it anymore, but I'm going to do it again. My question for them is why do you keep doing things that you don't want to do, that you don't like when you do them, you don't like it before you do it, you don't want to do it, and you don't like it after you're done doing it. Why would you do that behavior over and over and over again? What are you getting out of it, right? And if we examine that question, that normally leads to 
uh, feelings of uh, stress relief or um, being calm or, or, or feeling like I actually come up out of a frozen state to, to feel something for a little while, whatever it is. Then we take that data, right? And we can loop it or, or tie it back into, well, some of, what are some of your childhood experiences and why would that be of value to you to either um, escape an, an emotion that feels overwhelming to you or come up out of a state of frozenness that also feels overwhelming to you. And it doesn't take long in those kinds of discussions to, to connect the thread. And we end up actually talking about something different, Drew, where, uh, where, where then guys are trying to minimize what we, we would call traumatic experiences to maintain the belief that they're just a bad and broken and morally defunct person. Um, and that's a different conversation, um, usually. It's one that I have a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good one, though, because you're on the right track. Because if I'm minimizing my trauma, at least I'm having a conversation about it. And what we can say is like, hey, man, like you can only live your life. These are the, your experiences and they're relative to you. And they've informed who you think you are. And they've informed how you see the world and how you see God. And we can't minimize minimizing them and make excuses for them really doesn't do us any good. What would it look like for me to um, sit with that experience and to feel through it? What was I feeling in my body and in my emotions when that was happening? Um, and he, well, then what, right? Either I say, Matt, no, I don't want to do that. And, and that's a waste of time. Or I do it and I realize all of the, the profound effects of those experiences. I'll give you a quick example. Okay. Of something that most people wouldn't consider quote traumatic, right. But it has a profound effect on a person. Right. So um, when I was a kid, I was maybe like 10 or 10, somewhere between 10 and 13. I can't exactly remember. Um, but I started getting interested in the Bible kind of on my own. And I think part of it was because I saw my dad reading his Bible. So every morning he would get, he would, he would read his Bible in his chair down in the living room. And that was the best time to talk to my dad. Cause then he'd be really nice and he'd be really present and be like, yes, yes, yes. And he, you know, cause he was just inundated with the, with the spirit or something, you know? And so he would read his Bible every morning and you weren't really supposed to interrupt him. That was kind of the unspoken rule. But if you did, you know, so, so I was like, okay, well, I'm struggling to connect with my dad. I don't really have a real deep emotional relationship with him. This seems to be important to him. And my little kid brain is like, I'll try that, you know? So I go to the basement, I dig up an old Bible, you know, discarded blue leather Bible. I said, this is going to be my Bible and I'm going to read this and I'm just like my dad. And, and maybe this will spark something. I don't, maybe there was that intuition, maybe not. But I opened the Bible and I remember it ran randomly to Joshua and I start reading Joshua and it's a really weird story. Joshua's out there like in a field or something and he's th thinking about what he's going to do and an angel comes down and tells him to walk around the city a bunch of times and the walls are going to fall down. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? Is it, who is this angel? Is this, is this God? Like why are the walls going to fall down if they just walk around them a whole bunch? I had all these questions, right? So I venture downstairs with my Bible and I say, Hey dad, can you explain this to me? Like what's, what's going on here? And he kind of gives me a real quick pat answer, you know, pats me on the head, ushers me out of his spiritual zone. And I go back up to my room. I'm like, okay, well, that was kind of helpful. And I keep reading and then I have another question. I go back down again, same response, right? Real quick answer, you know, pat me on the head, send me on my way. This happens three times. And on the third time I go down there to, to, to try to get some help around this stuff. Um, he, this time he follows me upstairs to my room and uh, he sits down with me on the edge of the bed. And I'm thinking in my head, like, all right, here we go, right? Like, I'm, I got, I got a connection with my dad. This is going to be cool. He's going to teach me about this stuff. 
And um, he kind of turns to me and I've talked with him about this as an adult and he, he doesn't quite remember it this way, but this is how my little brain remembered it. He turns to me and says, Hey Matt, if you, um, if you want to know God and you want to have a relationship with him, you're going to have to do it kind of on your own, right? This is kind of a thing that you do between you and God. This is a relationship that's formed that way. And he said a lot of other stuff, but it turned into that, like Charlie Brown, like, because all I heard was you're on your own, buddy, right? If you want to know God, you're going to have to do it on your own. And I think, and I talked to him about this as an adult, and we've had some healing in our relationship, but, but, but I think he thought that he was doing like a really stellar job as a parent, like really giving me good advice and just yeah, he probably walked out of there and was like, whoo, where you go, you know? But for me, I was just devastated, right? And I remember every bit of that memory. I remember the, 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 the bed. I remember the texture of the comforter. I remember what was hanging on the walls. I remember everything because it was a trauma. And that's how the brain records trauma, like in detail like that. And the trauma for me was, Matt, you're on your own. And every effort that you make to connect with this man is going to be turned away. And in fact, your relationship with God is kind of be that as well, right? Where you reach out and, and you don't really know, and you, this stuff is hard to understand, but you're kind of on your own too. Now, I share that story with you because there are some people that are going to listen to this and say, that's not trauma. No one hit you. No one said anything mean to you. No one, um, you know, there's no bones that broke or anything like that. But trauma is just a disruption in my ability to regulate my own uh, nervous system in that moment, right? And what got broken there was my connection to my caregiver that I could count on this person to care and cultivate me. And then something broke there. And so I, I, I have less trust or less, uh, I can count on him less to, to respond to me from there on out. Right. So that's, that's trauma and trauma informs who I am, that I am apparently, I don't, you know, I don't matter that much, right? I have, I'm kind of on my own Two, It informs how I see the world that like you're on your own. And uh, as you encounter this big, scary world. So, so yeah, it's absolutely a trauma. And how did it affect your relationship with God? Exactly the way that I would describe like the cold box, right? Where, where God became a version of my dad, where he just had his back turned to me. And he would kind of look at me over, over his shoulder when I would do the right thing or when I'd be good or when I, you know, would be nice to other people or volunteer or whatever it is. You know, I had a lot of people in my life that were mentoring me like through my kind of middle school to high school. And one guy in particular who was encouraging me to, to find the kid in, in the youth group who didn't seem like they fit and to go and make friends with that kid. And so what I felt like I was doing, making God proud, right? I would go and he'd be happy with me. He'd be proud of me and he would turn around and he would be like, yay, Matt, very good. You know, but if I screwed up or if I masturbated or if I lied or if I lost my temper or whatever it was, then God's back would then turn to me again. And I would have to do some other kind of performance to get him to turn back around. Now that carries on into adulthood, right? Where it became more and more about trying to perform to get God's approval. And the crazy thing that happened, and I know we're pretty off topic here, Drew, but the crazy thing that happened is that evolved into adulthood was it turned into entitlement. They're like, all of the things that I'm doing to impress God and to prove that he's great and I'm great, like, I'm so much better than all of these other Christians, and I'm working so much harder than them. And why isn't God 
giving me what I deserve, right? Why am I not getting this deep, um, warm relationship with him? Or why am I not getting recognized? Or why am I not getting um, promoted or whatever, whatever it was, right? As a, as a, you know, 20 some year old person. Um, and that turned into anger at God. Like I was putting my quarters in the machine and I was not getting my pop out. That's how I thought it worked. Right. I, you know, I get my, where's my pop. And then what and I'm banging on the side of the machine, just trying to get my pop to come out. And, um, so anyway, those messages, you know, have so many layers of, of, um, destruction built into them. Yes. Matt, thank you so much for sharing that story because in it, I hear an invitation to all of us to, first of all, consider what is our view of God? What is our experience of God? How do we feel with Jesus? What is his expression toward us? How close is he? And then based on that, to discover more about where that's coming from. What are the stories that each of us have of a dysregulated nervous system, of that rupture with our caregivers, with our mom, our dad, uh, the people who who were supposed to help us develop emotionally, sexually, and and to understand more, just to to at least have that insight about where some of this is coming from. And some of us are very new to that, and we need to get back into those stories to see how this set us up for our relationship with pornography as a regulator. And for those of us who do understand how we're broken, who do see the dots and we're able to connect them and we still feel stuck, what's the way out? Well, like you said, like I have to start integrating all these truths into to some sort of cohesive whole, right? That, that the traumas and I accept them as such have dysregulated my nervous system, right? They have divorced me from caregivers early on in my life that could have helped me with that. So now I'm either pushed into fight or flight or shut down or freeze in order to deal with uh, distress in my life. And that hasn't changed since I was a kid, right? My, I, the way that I handle distress, if I am not in recovery, I haven't had any healing, is going to be really similar to the way that I dealt with distress when I was a kid. I'm going to try to self-soothe. I'm going to try to isolate. I'm going to try to either shut it all down or I'm going to go into, you know, fight or flight, right? I'm going to go into, you know, rapid heartbeat, shallow breathing, rage, anger, anxiety, things like that, that are going to, you know, elevated nervous system responses or shut down nervous system responses. What I need to do is first learn about my nervous system, that those are the things that are, that are happening in my body, their reactions to my childhood trauma that have been kind of affirmed over and over again. And then I have adopted these sexual behaviors as a way to uh, deal with that dysregulation that I I've adopted pornography as a way to release that fight or flight sensation in my body to come back down from an 11 back down to a, a six or seven or to come up out of freeze and to feel like I'm actually alive and, and that I'm a person and that I matter. And the, the crazy thing is that sex addiction doesn't really have a lot to do with sex. It's just the avenue by which I have um, received um, coping and care and self-comfort and self-soothing. It's, it's the avenue by which I regulate my nervous system. And I could have, and if something else had been introduced at, a, at that time in my life, then I might've done that. I might've used drugs or alcohol or something like that. What we teach in our program is that you have that trauma or attachment wound and that uh, introduction of what we call maladaptive sexual behavior was wired together. And now I'm every time that attachment wound or trauma is triggered, I I go back to that maladaptive sexual behavior in order to cope with it. Right. And that, that introduction could have been early porn, could have been early exposure to masturbation. It could have been molestation or sexual abuse whatever, it just cued me in that I can change what's happening in my nervous system by doing this thing. And if I do it enough times, then it becomes a pattern, right? So I first have to 
learn as an adult now in recovery, I have to study my nervous system because it gives me clues to when I might be going to act out. That if I'm up here, then I'm probably, you know, I'm in danger of, of going to regulate through sex. Or if I'm shut down and depressed and numbed out, then I'm, I need to recognize that. And we uh, use tools to come up out of those places and come back into my window of tolerance. And those tools um, are, are really helpful. They help me come back to a place in my brain where I can make decisions instead of um, have reactions. But my ability to come out of fight or flight or come out of freeze is going to be determined by kind of the power of those reactions, right? So if they're so overwhelming that I can't get a handle on them, then I'm not going to be very successful in using my tools. And that's why we treat the trauma. So if I go back and treat the trauma at the root of that, then the power of those triggers is going to go down, right? And I'm going to be able to have a better access to those tools. So that's the program in, in terms of the, the scientific kind of uh, pain points of like where we need to interact with, with addicts to help give them, give them more traction, right? And then there's the, that's the physical and the mental side, right? And then the emotional side is how do I feel through my feelings and rather, rather than numb them out or shut them down? And the spiritual aspect of how does God really see me in my shame and in my addiction, and and how do I begin to pursue that uh, deeper, more intimate, more relational connection to him that's based in the gospel and not based on what my trauma uh, tells me he's like, right? And I put all those elements together. That's a really powerful cocktail for recovery. And we get to see a lot of success um, in guys that come through our program and get to experience all of those movements, you know, Absolutely. It's so much more robust. It's full. And I can see how maybe for someone who thinks to themselves, well, in order to get free from porn, I need more scripture. I need more prayer. I need to repent. That's what I've been taught at my church. That's what the Bible tells me to do. I can see how with a story like yours, Matt, that would actually be reenacting your trauma, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's reenacting a lot of guys' trauma because I think one of the things that a Christian program has to address is how the church has responded to this because that is all wound up in how I'm responding to it, right? They're shaming it, so I'm shaming it. They don't talk about sex, so I don't talk about sex. You know, the people that get caught doing this are shamed and outcast. So I'm ashamed and outcast. And so, I mean, it's just, it's church wounds, right. That get wrapped up in this too, because when we get discovered in the addiction, we're losing our identity. We're losing our coping skills. We're losing our families. And now we're losing our community, right. Of fellow believers. And there's so much to sort through there in terms of, of the wreckage. And maybe I don't even want to go back to church because all those people were so um, hurtful. And I know some of these guys and I've had conversations with some of these guys and they're struggling with some of the same things and they just haven't got caught and they're judging me and they're saying these things and they're pushing me out the door. And now I have to wrestle with that too. And so a Christian program has to not just address childhood wounding and childhood trauma, but also woundings that's happened in the church and how ineffective responses from leaders, some well-intentioned leaders um, sometimes add, add a burden. Yeah. It's so real. And yeah, it is. And when I'm allowed to, to, to talk to church leaders and about these issues um, is that, Hey, we, aren't gaining a lot in our work with guys that are struggling with this by telling them what they're doing is bad. They know that already and they, they, they know it the whole time. Right. So communicating to them that what they're doing is bad is not helpful to them. And even guys that are stuck in denial, they know probably better than anybody that their stuff is bad and that's why they struggle to face it. Um, and, and I, I love the church. I love the church. And I love 
church leaders and I love the way that they're they're the ones that 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 are curious about how to interact with this stuff. Um that it's so wonderful to speak with them. Um and so I don't want to hear I don't want anybody to say that like uh, I'm fed up with the church or or I don't have respect for for church leaders and 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 the way in which they try to integrate the scriptures into guys that they see in their offices. But we also have to continue to come alongside the church and say, Hey, there are certain things that um, we need to, to help with. And that there are certain professionals and there are certain people that can come alongside and support the church and how to address these things, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't try open heart surgery in your office. You wouldn't like clear off the table and like cut somebody open and start messing around with their, their aorta or whatever. Right. You would say, hey, hey, go see a doctor. Right. Go go to a surgeon. Right. Because, you know, God's created your body, but he's also created avenues of healing that are outside of my pastoral office. And the same thing for your brain and the same thing for your kidneys. And here, take a Tylenol for your headache and take some chemotherapy for your cancer. And trauma is the same way. Right. God's ordained avenues of healing for trauma in this, just like chemotherapy and and other things. Um, And to be able to come alongside the church and say, Hey, like these things work for people. They help people. Um, You know, we'd love to support you in in your body and your, in in your members in that way. You know, you know, that's part of the bigger picture, right. Of, of um, carrying out the gospel within the church right? Jesus' mission to bring healing and sight to the blind and freedom to the oppressed, you know? Amen. So, I absolutely love being a part of that work. And we get to see the results. We get to witness what God is doing with the front row seat of of watching people experience Jesus and feel His love. Yeah. And it's really hard to describe because that's the hard thing about it. It's like, well, you can, you can talk to people. You know, so, so have you ever like been in like a psychodrama or something? You know what that is? Like when you're in some, in, in somebody's psychodrama and they're just like giving it to their, their dad. Right. Um, you can edit this stuff out, but he, they're just like, this guy is talking to his like brother or something in his psychodrama. And then he turns to the guy playing his dad and he just like, you yeah and he's just like going and going and going and the well the other participant the other group guy is just kind of just like you know but, but he's just letting it happen right and he called his dad the king because his dad was just ruled with an iron fist right and and then so we're playing his dad and just like you you're judging me but you're the same way buddy you are all pissed at me but you've adopted some of the same behaviors. Do you, you hate me? Well, you got to hate yourself. And he just like, you know, and he's just doing that whole thing. And, and he's just like, I'm nothing like you and I'll never be anything like you. And, and, and the dad guy's just like handing him this object that we were using. Like, Hey man, you're the King. You, you became just little me. Here you go. And he's holding this thing and he's just like hating it. And he turns around and we have this guy standing there and and it's like hey so i want you to imagine that this person sitting in front of you is jesus and he's like do you what do you want to give that to him and he's like i i don't want to i can't i can't give that to him and he's and and the guy playing jesus is just like in the in the moment he's doing he's doing really good work and he's just like yeah give it to me i can take it and he takes that that role of tyrant and kingship and and heavy-handed authoritative control over his life and his addiction and everything in his world and he wants to take it from him and his the guy just crumbles as he hands it over to him and kind of collapses into to jesus arms and my co-therapist doug comes up and he whispers in his ear to the the guy playing jesus and he says he says i'm the king and he whispers that back to the guys, I'm, I'm the king. Your dad wasn't king. You're not the king. You can be free because I'm the king. 
And he's just like, and then he comes up out of it and he comes over to me and, he, and he's just like shaking by the shoulders. just like, you have no idea what that meant to me. Like, how did you know to do that? And, and I'm like, I would love to take credit, man. But like, that's like somehow, sometimes how the spirit works in those environments to like release things in, in kind of weird, creative ways like that. I say all that drew because like describing stuff like that on a, on a, like an audio podcast is really hard to do without sounding like you're completely nuts, you know, but, but that's, that's the stuff that you get to be a part of. That's the stuff that you go home and tell your wife about and like, Oh my gosh, you have no idea what I got to do today. And like watch Jesus do and like how he shows up in this combination of psychotherapy and spiritual healing, you know, how do you describe that to people? You know what I mean? Like, how do you do it? It's indescribable. I have that experience almost every Friday. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's cool, man. It's so cool. But unless you're in the, the husband material video or you're in session with the therapist who's doing that kind of integrative work, like it's, you don't have a context for it. So you can't really explain it to somebody. I mean, we've been talking about the gospel and trauma and talking about the concepts, but really it's more caught than taught. It's something you have to experience for yourself. You have to feel it. You have to get in the arena and rumble. You have to get in the room with some of these guys and see what happens to really understand it. That's true. Yeah. And it's a, it's a combination of like gifting and just and the spirit and some training and like that like kind of cocktail like allows you to kind of engage in those moments in a way that I actually don't engage in other spaces of my life I was telling my wife the other night I was like I wish that I could engage in my life the way that I engage in group therapy where I'm just like so cognizant of everything in the room and so cognizant of like what needs to happen and 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 then the spirit's just like speaking and and i was like why can't i do that in other areas of my life and she's like because you're tired you buddy you know what i mean and she's so kind and wise and she's really nice to me about it but she's just like that's probably takes a lot of effort and you can't just go around and be like that all the time you know and god has grace for us in that but and i love i love that space i love it too and i think it's the same way with somebody who attends an intensive or goes through an intense time of healing afterwards you think well why can't i feel that loved by jesus all the time why can't i have this beautiful relationship with my inner child all the time <laughs> and it is exhausting um, but like what a beautiful taste we get to have really a foretaste of what eternity will be like and here in our lives right now we get a little more and just a little more. And, and I think the more we have this acquired taste for life with God, with our brothers, with ourselves, um, then the old ways seem less appealing. Oh, totally. And that's why I think it's so important in recovery. Like, like that last sentence right there, well, everything else just seems less appealing. When I'm in that zone, right, where I'm in that connection with who I am really and who God is, well, that doesn't none of that other stuff is excites me because I see it for what it is. It's just an avenue to suck my thumb, to try to calm my system. Down. I call it a pacifier. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, that's so like, it's so much less complex, right? There's like, there's not all these like fetishes and, and nuances and different kinds of porn and all that, all that stuff fades away. And it's just like, man, I, I'm, I'm seeking healing for these wounds. I'm not going to continue to deepen these wounds. Like, why would I want that? You know? And yeah, I love this person. I want to be in a more emotionally connected space with this person. And I've done so much damage. Like I'm ready to be accountable. Like I want, you know what I mean? And we move into that, um, that want to, like, I want, I want to be better. You know? Yes. I want this new life and I don't need the old life anymore. Right. Right. So Matt, 
what is your favorite thing about freedom from porn? To be fully honest, you know, and I, and I try to be like, I'm not in recovery. So I got into sex addiction work through kind of the side door of like trauma. Like I worked with kids that were experiencing trauma and, um, and I kind of tripped over. I am experiencing freedom from pornography, but I also was never in a place of, of compulsive addiction to it. But, um, but I have a lot of empathy, obviously, and my own experiences and my own traumas have informed how I connect with the guys that I work with. But what I appreciate about not being addicted to pornography is the ability to be fully present in my life, um, to inhabit my life in my emotions and to feel. Uh, and, and I have struggled with depression in my life. And when I am in that place um, and, and I can imagine very clearly how porn could put me in that place of just, just everything is just like, oh, you're underwater and I don't get to feel, and I don't get to inhabit my life. And I'm just kind of drifting and floating and, um, crawling through my own existence. And um, so that's what I appreciate about, about the freedom from those things. And um, the freedom that I've experienced in my own healing from my own trauma is the ability to be, to fully inhabit my life in all of its spaces and all of its phases. And the, you know, we teach mindfulness techniques, right. And of, of just being inhabiting the textures and the senses and the smells and the light and the things that I can see and the things that I can touch and the things that I smell and, and to be full and to be present in my own life, be present to my family, be present to my wife, to be present to God. Matt, thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. I, I was looking forward to this because I know that you and I see things really similarly. And so I was looking forward to having this conversation and, um, and I have, lived up to my expectations thoroughly enjoyable to talk with somebody who who i feel like gets speaks my language in that regard and um so yeah it's been a pleasure man same here i feel like we could talk for a long time but uh, it's going to be great to see you in person and the men who choose to come to the boulder recovery intensive starting on june 18th i will not be there the whole time just for one day to to come and say hello and see what it's all about. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited for that. And if you want to uh, reach out to Matt. June 18th, we're going to be doing another one. And yeah, we're really excited to welcome another group of eight or 10 guys into that. And so excited, Drew, that you're going to be there. Um, yeah, June 18th to July 2nd. Um, and you can go on boulderrecovery.com to interact with our admissions uh, crew and get signed up for that. You know, it's, it's pretty significant financial investment, but you're getting like a year or two worth of therapy in that, in those two weeks and the, you know, the clinicians being with you, you know, eight hours a day or more um, to support that process. So you do the math. It's, it's, it's pretty reasonable in terms of recovery programs, but but we want to invite anybody that's out there struggling with these things, struggling to get traction in their recovery. Um, they keep relapsing or um, they've just been discovered for the first time and they're in crisis and they don't know what to do and things are crumbling around them at home. Or somebody who's been sober for a really long time, but it still isn't experiencing the emotional fruits of recovery and they're still stuck in rage or depression or um being stuck in the role of the victim or, or claiming the role of the victim in, in, in a lot of their circumstances. These are all signs that I have unresolved trauma and I'm not really going to be experiencing the full fruits of my recovery until I do that. So if that is you in any of those kind of three categories, then we'd love to help to, to integrate those skills and the scientific aspects of the healing around your nervous system, teach you about trauma and what it's about give you some um, healing from those traumas, um, teach you about the impacts that's had on your, the people in and around your life and how to empathize and relate to them. 
and then introduce you to a warm, compassionate, um, prodigal God who is overflowing with, um, with love for you and has a whole life full of grace for you that, 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 that you believe that you is yours in the gospel, but, um, you're struggling to, to actually believe, you know, that we can through gospel meditation, through, um, meditating on the scriptures together, through introducing Jesus into those guided meditations and spiritual practices and that I can actually develop a deep and relational connection with the person of Jesus that I was made for and that he confirmed that I was made for in his incarnation. There is healing in Jesus and there is healing in trauma work. And those two things coexist. Yes. Yes, they do. They have to, right? Because, you know, all good things are God things, you know, and all healing is God's healing, I think. And um, there's always a bit of him in that, you know, if it's, if it is good and healing, you know, so the church should re- should reclaim this stuff, you know. And learn more about Boulder Recovery. Go down to the links below in the show notes and you can find everything. You can also find the book, Tinsa, Trauma-Induced Sexual Addiction by Michael Barda, who started the program. And no matter what, my friend, always remember, you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well-pleased. Mm-hmm.